Dr. Draper, uh, we are now uh, working on part two together. Um, oh, this is part three. Sorry, yeah, I think we, put, we started off. Oh, as a background. Yeah, yeah, and, and then into Kant. Yeah. We're coming out of Kant and working our way towards um, probably you and I know is probably one of the most informative minds in the process of optical critical theory, and that is Friedrich Hegel yep. and his thought. Um, and and uh, you know, while while Dr. Draper and I were talking, and, and he makes this a really good point that it's hard to say anyone in the critical movement is Hegelian. Formally, you know, they wouldn't even recognize and Hegel himself becomes somewhat unpopular in his own circles yeah, by yeah. the 1830s and 1840s. Nonetheless, there's something architectural, and we've been trying to come up with a word that explains this, something architectural what Hegel does that sets um, a pattern, a DNA, a framework that it seems like everyone else is playing inside of. It seems like Marx is playing inside Hegel's playground. It seems like Freud is playing inside Hegel's playground. It seems like the critical theorists are. So there's something about Hegel here. Kant sets some things up, and then there's this bridge character. We're going to look at Herder and a few others, but probably just um, Herder more than anybody else. And then Hegel's going to start to put all these pieces together um, into something that is broad. I mean, he says things specific, mm -hmm. but, but he lays out a, a, a pattern of view, a framework of the world that seems like is going to endure pretty strongly between Hegel and now. And whether we're willing to admit it, we've probably all been influenced by the way he sees the world. Yep. Um, and, and I think it would be helpful for us at least to do that in some detail um, as we try to unpack what that is. So in order to do that, let's just, just, just briefly, don't want to spend a lot of time here, but just remember, uh, remind us, um, Dr. Draper, what it is that we found out about Kant. What, what was, what was the, the innovation that Kant gives us that helps us into yeah. this next stage? Yeah, and I think, the, the, and, and again, following the DNA pattern, I think, when Kant sort of creates this sort of phenomenal world, noumenal, and kind of puts things like God and sort of metaphysics mm -hmm. up into the noumenal. And then we live in phenomenal, which is reality, mm. that we can know. Mm. But I think the big move Kant makes, the sort of the, the breakthrough move, is that we don't live on sort of ideas alone or mm -hmm. facts alone. Mm -hmm. we, we always shape them. Mm. Right, so our mind is somewhat of a jelly jar, mm. and that's why jelly's always cylindrical. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. Uh, things like that. Um, so that 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 what we know as truth are in many ways we are part of the process of creating those mm. Uh, mm. because we can't know just sort of abstract. Yeah, he does have a space for sort of a priori knowledge mm -hmm. and this type of thing, but I think the big move for as we get to critical theory is or critical theories is that we the human being are really manufacturing some way what we know is true mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and these ideas uh and that becomes that will just set things up right, right? right that right. people just all of a sudden start to accept that is normative right and even when we move into liberal theology, I always believe Kant is really sort of the father of liberal oh, yeah. theology. You know, not to besmirch Schleiermacher, but <laughs> in many ways, Schleiermacher is trying to refine Christianity in light of Kant. Yeah. Where it doesn't matter if Jesus really rose from the dead, as long as that's my experience of it. Yeah, yeah. Again, so you put everything's very experiential yeah. because we don't know anyway. We right. can't know anyway. So, um, so those two, those are two very big pieces. I think that that this it's experiential. Experience is our only yeah. tool. Yeah, that's right. Right, that that is the key here. Um, that's all you have. You right. don't have anything else. That is the only instrument. 
And I think you know here we are today, and everyone's always talking about experience. Right? Right. That's all they right. want to talk about. Well, let's 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 come up with an example that may help as we go into how Herder and Hegel will shape this differently. Um, what what would someone listening to say? Well, what does it matter? What's numinal? So what? You know, well, let's try something that we all know has to be real and is numinal at the same time, and that's a moral law. Yeah. So you say lying is wrong. Yeah. Is saying something that's what we'd say in the Greeks would say is a universal. It's always wrong because there's a moral principle that says lying is wrong and honesty is right. Yeah. So that's something we could say is in the numinal realm, right? It's up there. It's unchanging. Yeah. It's absolute. I don't experience it. I don't put rocks under microscopes and go, look, lying is wrong because it's not phenomenological, right? It is numinal by Kant's description. So if it's numinal and up there still, we have to make decisions, Mark, about lying is wrong. And I have to come to you and I say, Mark, don't lie. And you can say, why? You can't prove to me right. that lying is wrong because there's no test, acid test that proves this. So if experience is the only way that we can know truth, that may work for penicillin and bacteria, right. Right? right? But it doesn't work for something like moral. So how does Kant get us out of this problem? Yeah. How does he give us a sense that we can actually have morals? And we talked about this the last time. But how can we get to the point where we can have morals that are only confirmed phenomenologically? Yeah. Yeah, and what he uses that line almost, would you want someone to lie to you? Yeah, right. right? That, that becomes the thing. That becomes the litmus test. You know, would you want this done to yeah. you? And then I think the other piece for him is duty. Yeah. Right, because for, for Kant, you don't even need virtue. Yeah, that's right. To, to be virtuous. Yeah. You just have duty. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the other thing that Kant is doing, right? Kant wants to develop a way of knowing truth and values and all of these things without having to go to a, an authority outside of humanity. That's right. That's right. Meaning, I don't want to have to use a sacred text. I don't want to use a magisterium who's going to define that text. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to use a, uh, a prophet, someone with saying they have some sort of supernatural yeah. wherewithal. I, I don't want to have to... And why don't we? Because they can't be trusted. Right, they can't be trusted. They can't be trusted. We're talking about something they can't know, right? If it's numinal. Well, and... We're talking about something no one person can finally and know. And I know I can't with. trust them because there's a 30 years of <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So, it's disaster in Europe. Yeah, when you, when you rely on these people, this, this is, what, is what it gets you, right, right? right? We need a better way. Right, so he says, he writes that, that article, um, you know, Vasistas of Clauder, what is the enlightenment? And it's that we can think for ourselves. Yep. And, and I think that's, a, that's an overly simplistic way, but there's a lot embedded in that because what you're saying is, I think is right, the inference is if we don't think for ourselves, then we're going to rely on people that are in the know and they're corrupt, yep. and that's how we end up with popes that destroy religion and kings that would destroy states. That's right. That's right. And so where you, know, where you can see this most evident is when uh, someone says, well, according to the Bible, this is blah, blah, blah. And someone said, well, why do you even believe that? Yeah, right? you, yeah. There has to be some other reason you believe that it can't be you actually believe those things. Yeah, right? Right. Whether you were duped by the state, you were duped by the church, you know, yeah. that's that critical evaluation. So if anyone ever does think in these ways, your automatic con has made it legal now to be suspicious yeah, right, of, of that. why you think those yeah, things. And yeah. that's still with us. Yeah. Yeah. That is still with us yeah. today. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but then I think you, you and I, when we were talking about between Kant and Hegel, you really think that Herder is someone we yeah. need to know about. Yeah, I think I think here's what Herder does, and I, I uh, someone and there's one historian I, I like, and he said it. Herder, Hegel's probably a footnote to Herder and Fichte, which you know again we don't have to get into them because Hegel's the one that clarifies us the best anyway. But but here, here here's part of the problem that Herder solves. I think that's so important. Um, is that if you take Kant's view of the categorical imperative and you say, whatever, I don't want you to do it to me and therefore I won't do it, 
that means that it's our agreement that makes this right. And and the what I think Kant imagines is if we asked every human being in the world, like if you want to get at this, was ask every human, and the consensus would be what is morally right. So do I know lying is wrong? Absolutely no. But if I asked all the human beings, they would say lying is wrong, and therefore I can assume that lying is wrong. The problem there is actually once we start to you know, especially in the 18th century, as people started to explore, realizing that's actually not the case. Right. Cultures have different views about genders and different views about lying, different views about power. And Herder has this really interesting perspective uh, right after Kant. In fact, Herder is a student of Kant. So mm -hmm. Herder studies under Kant, sees this reality, but then can't apply it into what he sees as different cultures, say a French culture, a German culture, or English culture. Maybe generically speaking, one plus one is two. We can all agree to that. So fine, maybe that's right. But there's so many other subtleties that what Herder comes to believe is that actually the categorical imperative where whatever we all agree on is only as wide as a culture itself. Mm -hmm. In other words, everyone speaking French, yes. yes, they would concede to a certain view about something, in you, but that's not what everyone speaking English or German mm -hmm. or Swahili would say. And in fact, he has this nifty little statement which has been overplayed a little bit, which is human thought is language and language is human thought. Mm -hmm. So that if the culture, if an individual culture now becomes the entire framework for, for phenomenology, in other words, how do I know I'm right? Well, I don't know I'm right universally, but I know for a Frenchman I'm right. So in some cases, Herder is exploding Kant's desire to have this objective, right? right? Correct. He's, yeah. he's, he's saying it can't be done mm. because you can't think outside of language. Mm. And since languages are different, there's no connection point, really. Now, mm. you could say all Latin languages, all you know, romantic languages maybe is Latin. But the point is, if you don't share a language, you actually can't because your language is determining how you value all yeah. of these things. Yeah. That comes yeah. first. So now, two things interestingly happen here. One, you actually now identify individual cultures as the only space to have these phenomenological agreements. Yeah. Right? So cultures, and this, that's a problem because what happens when German and French culture don't get along? That's uh, one problem. That happens? No, not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't know anything about the 20th century. Right? Uh, uh, or, the <laughs> or the 19th century. century right? yeah, okay, okay. Um, I just thought they were so close to friends. They're, they they're really cheese. buddies. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. They might drink beer together. Yeah. Um, but the other the other part, not only does it does it create that, but it creates this other interesting feature, which I think is really an important part, which I know you've done a lot of thinking through with Hegel, and that is it defines the individual's identity entirely inside a construct that is not his. Yep. Right. So... What, what he's basically saying is, and he makes this really interesting statement, all morals, all morals are merely the result of cultural values. Mm. So if you say you don't like lying, you're not appealing to an absolute standard. You're just saying, I was taught that my people don't like lying. So there is no moral absolute for him accessible beyond this is what our culture thinks. So now, mm. And this is what Marx will get at later, and I think Hegel sets up the stage for this, is there's nothing about you that is not entirely defined by your cultural context. Interesting. Your values about gender. All of this is, con you're, you're an entirely constructed being. And every claim you make to something universal, even mathematics, if it came down to it, yeah. is really nothing more than the cultural influence on you. Wow. So if Herder, now, and here's the problem, Dr. Draper, is how we sort of bridge our way into Hegel. If Herder's right, then how do we get, how do we do anything universally human or good yeah. if we're entirely trapped inside the culture that we have? Yeah. So, so fine, now I'm going to be an American and you're going to be French and ne'er the twain shall meet. Yep. And well, that would explain the 20th century. Right, right. <laughs> well, and I think Herder is often credited with this, and I'll just throw this in real quickly, with what we call romantic nationalism. Yeah. And that is that the your identity is entirely tied in with your national identity, mm -hmm. which is how we get an idea of a modern Germany and a modern Italy, even yeah. in a modern Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Is you see your entire identity, values, and everything being locked, not, not compared to something absolute and perfect, right. like some Christian value, 
but tied entirely inside some cultural norm, set of norms. So, so does, does, in one sense, Kant risks nihilism yeah. because we don't know what's true anymore. Herder tries to save us from that yeah. by saying, no, you're okay because within a culture you can see, but now if all cultures disagree, we still don't know what's absolutely right. Yes. Does Hegel save us from this? He thinks he does. Okay, he thinks he does. <laughs> he thinks yeah. he does. He I might he, actually he, do it. Yeah. He, I think he thinks he does because he, uh, where where Hegel is a true romantic, you know, he's part of this romanticism movement. He's an idealist, yeah. right? Explain that word. Yeah, where that you can pretty much do all of this work in your mind, mm. right? Mm. That's probably the simplest way. Mm. Where experience is the thing for Kant, mm. the mind is the is the you know it's in the mind in that way. Uh, you can kind of reason your way to these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so where Hegel, I think, is trying to do is, what he's trying to respond to Kant, he doesn't like the idea that Kant has like basically upstairs and downstairs. Right? Yeah, he yeah. doesn't like noumenal and phenomenal. Yeah. For uh, Hegel, there is only the phenomenal, mm. and the phenomenal is reality. Mm. That's what it. What we see, what we are. Yeah. What, it's what we have. It's yeah. what we are. And, but he's also sort of, he's a mystic as well. He's sort mm. of metaphysic in that way. He's, mm. he's not a, a hardcore rationalist mm. in that way because his ideas are, have sort of this very interesting eschatology and teleology mm. built mm. in that how he can prove that, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what he does is he, he really sees, as you had said, history is, is the playground of where reality is unfolding mm. and truth is unfolding. Uh, and of course, a lot of people, if they do know Hegel, if anything about Hegel, they know the dialect, That's right. right? That's right. Where you have the, you have a thesis, and then you can undo the thesis with a new antithesis, you know, antithesis, and, and synthesis, and you you keep moving along until you come up with something better. Yeah. Uh, and for for him, this is really how truth develops. Mm. But I think where where it begins with him is that everything is in process, mm. um, so that hum, humans are in process to discover themselves mm. and to discover truth. But even, and he, he has an idea of a God, mm. uh, not nothing like Judeo-Christian mm. understanding of God, but just sort of this absolute spirit. Mm. And what, what the move he makes in this is that the absolute spirit, so we'll just say God, and humanity are mm. both in this process mm. of discovering themselves, self-actualization, mm. Uh, and and any I don't want to use the word evolving. That mm-hmm. that seems it's a, it's a little more pre Darwin here. Let's yeah, it is, it is. But are developing. Mm-hmm. They're developing, and and so for him, then you have this situation where humans are constantly historically. You can follow history and see how humans have been wrestling with the dialectic. Mm-hmm. As they have sort of been discovering new truths, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can actually sort of chart this along by by cultures, mm. right? So you know uh, the Greeks and Romans—they're a little better than the Egyptians. Yeah, right, you know, right. and the Egyptians were better than the Mesopotamians, and, and you can sort of follow this along based on, I would say, Hegel's understanding of right. Mm. <laughs> you right, know, right. Yeah. It's it's really a uh, a 19th century definition of this mm. is good, this is bad. Mm. So he can't even get himself out of his own yeah, his right. own space. Right. Uh, which, okay, Herder. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but so th- this becomes a very important part for Hegel and even how he's understanding truth. Where this becomes really important DNA-wide in our story is, so on the one hand, 
it's Kantian in the sense that we, the humans, are kind of creating the truths in some way, mm. right? There's a set, there's sort of a self alter. But the other piece is the creator's in the same process mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. I don't use creator. The absolute right. is in the same place with you. So right. there's both going on at the same time. Um, and, and, and constant, but you almost have to have this sort of Pollyannish belief, mm. sort of naked assertion. Mm. That everything is moving in the right direction, yeah. right? We're moving towards something better, right? right. Uh, and it's always better. Therefore, you know, the the arc of history is bending always towards bending justice. Right. Right? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from Obama. Yeah, it doesn't come from Dr. King. It comes from Theodore Parker, yeah. who is a Unitarian transcendentalist <laughs> pastor in New England. Right. And what are those guys reading? They're reading Hegel. Right. They're reading Kant. They're idealists. They're German idealists. Right, right. So even here in America, where Hegel and Kant are not going to get uh, a lot of traction until probably the late after the Civil War. Sure, sure. There are people even then, so you can kind of see. So it, it, you could almost call it some sort of secular post-millennialism. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's uh, and the difference I say between say the post-millennialism of Lyman Beecher, Albert Barnes, or Jonathan Edwards is God has preordained this. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in Hegel's post-millennialism, the creator is in the process with everybody else. Yeah. And this is, right, and this is really important we're getting at here because we can't lose focus on the fact that Hegel himself is not a relativist. He's not saying whatever no. anything happens. What he's saying, and this, is, and this becomes a problem, I think, with Kant, is that once the absolute is removed, you can't make a moral statement and know you're right. Yeah. If we don't have that transcendent reality that's never changing, we don't know how to align ourselves with with what that reality is. That what, in fact, Hegel is giving us is history itself is the ideal. It is the ideal, right? History is the ideal. Machen, uh, J. Gresham Machen, um, the founder of Westminster Seminary, says in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, for these folks, Hegelians, history is God and God is history. And so what he does is not saying any old way will do. Yeah. It's the zeitgeist, which Hegel like talked about, the, the world spirit. spirit of the age. Yeah. Whatever that next development is, you want to get in line with that next development. And you don't know where it's going because God doesn't know where it's going. Right. And that's your point, right? He's evolving. Yes. So there is an ideal and you here. You can't even use the word he. There's no, no crown no, no, in here, right? Spirit, is, right? Spirit. Yeah, yeah. But, but there is an ideal. There is an absolute. It's just at the end of time. He yes. relocates it from the noumenal yep. to the end of the chronology. Yep. And yeah. so now you are in this place where you, and this is what the dialectic does, is the dialectic isn't people deciding to improve. It's historical happenstance. You know, a, a thesis might be um, the French government and the ancient regime with monarchy and aristocracy. And then the antithesis is Robespierre and the French Revolution. And you didn't know where this was going. But when the two collided and the French Revolution became a war, Napoleon comes out of it and you go, oh, that's better. Mm-hmm. Now, how do I know that's better? I didn't compare it back to some scriptural, you know, precept. Right. Right. I said, oh, that's what comes next. Yep. And my job now is to reject whatever came before as part yes. of the old thesis and the old antithesis and now align myself with the new synthesis until it runs into its antithesis. That's why you don't want to be a conservative. Right. You're conservative right. in an old way. That's right. You're conservative. And, 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 the, and what's good and what's moral is not something you can know. It's something you have to do. Yeah. Morality is doing something in line with whatever history and is And in that framework, you want to be known as a progressive, yeah. not as Absolutely. a conservative, Goodness right? Gracious, because yeah. you want to be in that. And so uh, I think it's the same way that gives us this language, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Right, that's right. Um, and, and, you know, let's play this out. Um, you know, what if, 
a different empire were to conquer the Western world. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, history is rewritten. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle is not the, not the mm -hmm. bees knees. It's Confucius. Yeah, right. Uh, or it's somebody else. Right. Well, the history is going to look different. Yeah. Or the narrative is going to. So this idea even of the end of history yeah. and history is moving in a trajectory right. in that way is, no, I think as Christians, we believe that history is moving in a direction. Right. Right. Uh, but we have, a, because of the scripture, there's Revelation 21 and 22. Right. And there's a clear trajectory. <laughs> there's a teleology we that's know, obvious here. Yeah. We actually know the proper teleology, the proper right. eschatology, anthropology, right. all those right. things. Where Kant, or with Hegel, this is a process. And I think, but I think that the, the sort of the selling feature of this for humanity is we're part of creating it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. very... Yeah. It's not like I have to read someone else's goal. Yeah. I get to help create. Right, it doesn't exist is. already. Exactly. Right. The big, the big word you would see if you study Edmund Husserl or other post-Hegelians is the idea of becoming. Yes. That that reality, truth, is not what exists. It's what becomes and unfolds yes. and is in process. And so, being part of the process is right. We get to be part as the world spirit finds itself. We also have to find ourselves. And this goes to something really interesting. And I, I know you've done some thinking on this, and this is another one of those DNA pieces. That if, let, let's say for a minute, that, and hypothetically, that at one point in our American life, we said, oh, we'll go back to lying is bad. That was a moral standard. But then there's been some crisis publicly, call it the Clinton administration, I don't know what, or, or the Trump administration. Right? And all of a sudden we realize in this new world, actually lying is no longer a problem. Mm. If it's actually I, a virtue. It's a, if I right. If I go back and hold to the old moral standard, yeah. I I am I am on my way to becoming as I follow the historical pattern. But now I'm working against that to go back yes. into what is something called a, a moral thing, which is unchanging. And if I'm not willing to change, then I become inauthentic. Yes. And and this word that you've returned to help us return to a lot is the idea of being alienated. That our true self is that which becomes. Yes. If you go back into a moral standard that doesn't change then you become alienated with your true self because yes. history has already moved beyond that. Yes. So give us some understanding because this is another big concept. The, the, the concept alienation. of alienation is, is so important to yeah. critical theories. Uh, and it, it, again, it, it is going to evolve over time. It's mm. going to be further refined from Hegel. So we're not saying that exactly the way Hegel is talking about this is exactly the way the critical theories right. are. But this concept of alienation is big for, for, uh, for Hegel because... At some point, humans begin in a bit of an alienated state. They're alienated from the absolute spirit. Mm. So for him, the, the story of the fall in the Bible is a mythological way biblical writers were explaining this alienation. Mm. Uh, but also the creator is alienated from himself, mm. or the, the absolute. Mm. And so the process is to constantly keep undoing this alienation. Mm. So what is this? I'll give you an example. Uh, Alienation could be a situation where you live in a state that says, um, you know, that, that marriage is wrong. Mm. And you're like, but I, <laughs> I want to be married. Yeah. I, I identify with marriage. I, I, I want to be part of marriage. You now have a state of alienation. Mm. You are in a state of alienation. Mm. And part of the reason you're in this state of the alienation is because the dialectic has not moved far enough, mm. right? Mm. And you can't truly... And maybe you're in a society that uh, not only are they against marriage, but they look down on people mm -hmm. who are married. Mm -hmm. And you decide to go get married on the sly. Well, what happens, though, is the other sense of alienation for, for Kant is the only way we actually know ourselves mm -hmm. is by how our community views us. Mm -hmm. 
<coughs> so you can't sort of have a sense of identity alone on mm. an island. Mm. Your identity is always tied to the community mm. you're in. So now you have a sense where I'm alienated from the community because I'm married. I'm alienated from the laws because it's opposed mm. to it. And I'm in this, in this space. And I'm, but, I, but because I'm not allowed to get married, mm. I'm also alienated from my true self. Yeah. And where he, where he, he unpacks this and it becomes a, probably one of the most popular parts of his book, The Phenomenological Mind, is this story he tells between the bondsman and, and, and the slave, mm. or the, the laborer and the, and, the, and the slave and the master. And the idea is he's showing that in some ways the, the laborer is alienated because he's kind of forced to live in a certain way mm-hmm. and he's, mm-hmm. he's oppressed. Uh, but, and as he kind of tells the story, it turns out, well, actually, the person who's the most alienated in this is actually the master because mm. he's not connected to the work he's doing. He actually relies on slave mm. for everything he has. And, and this, so this story of, of the slave and the master becomes hugely important, mm. particularly when you get into the 20th century in this concept of alienation when we move into existentialism, mm. I think when we move into critical theory, the Frankfurt School, and if Marx is going to jump all over oh, this, yeah, and we'll get to that point. We don't want to give that away. Um, but you know, you can even be alienated sexually, mm. uh, and that's Marx. Even in the Paris uh, manuscripts, mm. this idea of alienation that you know, if, if you you might be alienated to your true sexuality because the economic system has created such a way where your sexuality is not yeah. accepted yeah. or is put off the table. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it's not purely economics, mm. that there's various ways, systems, and laws, and community arrangements right. that can create this sense of alienation for the individual, for communities. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so part of what we're trying to do in the dialectic is for humans and for the absolute to get to the end of their alienation. And you know you had that point where the the human, the finite, and the absolute are at one. At one. At so one. so as, you, as you, you mentioned the word post-millennial, which is helpful here because the idea is that the telos or the end defines everything that comes before it. So why is this a good move? Because it's getting closer to whatever that is. Yes. In Hegel, and I think this is true also in Marx, Probably in critical theorists, too. We don't know what that is. Yes. Which I think is crucially important here, because if we knew what it was, we'd start evaluating now and go, wait a minute, let's make decisions. But since the world spirit is evolving, what's built into this whole process is that the telos itself is not yet determined. It's an indeterminate thing that this has to evolve into. And so on one side, alienation is being separate from that process. And in another one, opposite, authenticity is where you actually become part of the process. So what's your authentic self is actually a self that's falling in line with this dynamic process of self-realization. And if you go against self-realization, this is where I think sexuality and morality, people say, why does critical theory in this mind, why is it so interested in sex all the time? Well, I think one of the reasons is because that's one place, as historians have noted, where Christianity had its most important, probably moral and civic influence, is by calling sex outside of marriage wrong and spilling off now all the various things that lead to it and from it. So that becomes one of these pointed places. But as soon as we call something, again, moral, we meaning absolute. And if we mean absolute, then we're going to stop the dialectic process right there. Yep. Everything else can change, but this can't. Yep. 
But once that happens, the dialectic is over, the process is over. And we have to go back to a time where we've got someone moral authority saying, you can't sleep with this person, you can't do yeah. that. Yeah. Which for people at this time, Hegel specifically, I think Kant also and then Marx, anytime you, you put that moral system back on people, yeah. you end up in the kind of abusive situations we've seen before. Yeah, there's an oppression. That becomes with it, right? And a repression. Let me get, yeah, well, that's Freud, right? right, right. Yeah, I don't want to give away too much. Um, but I think one example maybe of this that, that would help people kind of get this sort of an American context, use Frederick Douglass. Okay. Uh, and I've seen this example before. So Frederick Douglass is uh, a slave who steals himself, right, runs away right. from slavery. He is... He is... Uh, he teaches himself to read. He's educated. He lives, he lives in the North. Uh, but he still doesn't, because of the laws in the North, even in this 1850s, 18, 1850s, you're still not fully a citizen. Mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In the, so you could argue that, on the one hand, Frederick Douglass felt a state of alienation as a slave, mm. came North, uh, and he's also experiencing a state of alienation because his culture is telling him he's second class. Mm. The culture is telling him that your race can't achieve X, Y, Z. And he's saying, well, yes, we can. Mm. I just wrote a book. Mm. Uh, And so he's feeling a sense of alienation from himself because the community will not allow him to be who he truly is. Um, He's being alienated from the community and oftentimes through legal law, through laws. Mm. And then there's this other state of he's alienated from the community, from Mm. the, the society. And, and so there's an example, I think, where we can see this really clear, mm. right? Where we would say, yes, you know what? This is a case where the laws had to change. We do agree with this. But I think the difference, say, between Hegel and Kant or, or Hegel and Douglas is Douglas is using the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and Scripture. Mm. It points in the past Absolute to say thing, yeah. the reason... I'm in this position is because you all aren't living up to these things. Right. Something in the past. Right. Where a Hegelian is only looking in the future. That's right. Uh, because documents from the past might be very good models or markers of where the dialectic got to at that point. Right. That's right. Yeah. But that's not the... And it might be a helpful argument. Right. But there, we're, we're really looking for something better. And I think right. that's, that's maybe a really different thing between, say some critical theories yeah. and say Mar or, or, or Frederick Douglass is Douglass is making his argument saying you're not living up to scripture you're not living up to the Declaration right. of Independence you're not living up to the Constitution right. so he's pointing to things that are 2,000 years old 70 yeah. years old that the Hegelian would say well that's yeah those know, things are true in all times and that's not what Hegelian would admit exactly right. exactly and 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 so and again I, I'm not sure anyone was ever a purely Consistent Hegelian, sure, right? I sure. don't know. I don't think there's a group, yeah, right. you know, where they have a doctrinal position on, right. on what it means to be Hegelian. But it's helpful to understand this so that when we get to critical theory and we hear these terms of alienation yeah. and authentic, authenticity and true self and these types of, where does this come from? Right. And, and again, I think I'm going to say this too. This is like sort of how not to argue with a Hegelian, mm. right? A Christian might say, "Well, it's in the Bible." Yeah. And you think, "Well, that's my trump card," right? right? For Hegelian, true Hegelian, and even if a person doesn't know they're Hegelian, That's right. if they use this argument, they are. Yeah. Is well, Paul didn't know as much, or Jesus didn't know as much. Right. And that was good for that time. It was good for that time. That's where the synthesis was then. Right. 
But now... The world spirit has evolved. The world spirit has evolved. Yeah. And, and it goes one step even further. Not only has, has, has humanity gotten to a better synthesis, the, cre- the absolute right. has moved. So when you hear something, well, God is still speaking. God is still... That's a popular phrase. It's a popular phrase, and, yeah. and it, it's Hegelian, and it will also, uh, which is more of a post-World War II movement, process theology, yeah. right? Where, which is, it, it's just Hegelian to the 2.0, really, yeah. when it comes to God. That even God is in process, right? right? And that's, that's so this, I, these ideas are so, where, where you might have somebody who wants to mark a point in time and say, this is true forever, always, a true sort of process Hegelian would say, no, that was at that moment. Right. And we've evolved. It's evolved. And, and God's we've learned all better. To, exactly. You know, God Couldn't has, have known this at the time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so it's a very different epistemology, right. and it's a very different framework. And, and I, would, I think you and I have said this. There are very few people walking around saying, I'm a Hegelian. Right. But there are, very, there are a lot of people who have Hegelian ideas right. and don't know where they come that's from. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I'd say, I'd say there's probably a lot in the framework of the way people think. I've been telling students, your German idealism is showing. Yeah. <laughs> right, because you, you already have this notion that somehow somehow morals are tied up in time and space and they're whoever, you know, whoever you're influenced by. And, and you, think that be, you think that way because you were simply given that. But it's hard to come up with a, a universal and say this is always true. We yeah. Say, yeah, but that's not how that sounds imperialistic. We're not, you know, all of these terms are tied back into some sort of Hegelian perspective. Yeah. That somehow truth is suited to its time, suited to its culture, and suited to its space. And that in order to really think truly, you need to simply be suited to your time and space. And, and I think where I think where the young Hegelians and in particular when we get the Marx forward, the the sort of the moment there or the decoder ring is well what what hinders the arc of just the mm-hmm. arc oppression yeah right power or, or whatever hinders the arc is oppression I yes guess yeah. Saying, yeah so when you say well why can't we get to this point there are interests, it would automatically do that if there weren't these interests exactly there are interests yeah. that have it's in their interest to keep this synthesis and not move to this right, one right. which goes to something very important here dr draper and that is another aspect i guess we haven't mentioned here that for Hegel, the indication this is happening is always in the state. Yes. And that, that is a bit of a controversial part after Hegel, and that becomes a real point of contention. Absolutely. But the idea being, and I think this goes to the Herder idea, where he, Herder found it in the Volk, in the people, down yeah. down in the, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales was written by sort of Herderian, yep. you know, um, neo-romantic uh, nationalist that would say, the true evolution of people is found down where the farmer is dealing in the fields with his own cultural you can values. You see where that's headed. Right, yeah, right. Um, but but Hegel says, yeah, but that's true, but all of that is captured in the real power of the state. And so he upends that and says, well, it's not, the Volk is just is just the tail end of what's happening in the state. And yeah. so, you know, leading into Nietzsche even, her, Hegel has this really high view of people who are in power. Their power is not that they're, they're abusive, it's they are sort of the, the condensation, the incarnation of all of this cultural influence and zeitgeist yeah. is captured there. Yeah. So when states fight states, that's typically where they're probably not seeing the dialectic happen when farmer X and farmer Y fight over where their borderline right, is in right, the property. Right. But where the, where the states interact, yeah. that's where you're starting to see. And, I and think, that's where he wants to put the safety. You know, right. That's who's going to protect us. The state is. Yeah. Well, and, he, and you can see innovation there, too, right? Yeah. You can see it happening. And, and that's how he tracks it historically. The other thing about Hegel, too, and I think Kant and Hegel both fit into this model so well, and Marx, too, 
is that there was this idea that, well, we solved it. Yeah. There was this sort of end of history utopianism mm. that's built into the idealism that we finally have figured it out. Yeah. And if you just let this dialectic play itself out, right. we're good. And, yeah. and Hegel really does, you know, some scholars would say Hegel kind of thought, we're pretty close. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, Con Marx was, always seems to head in that way, too. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's another DNA strand in some of this right. is the sense that there's this idealism and the idealism, while it's working in the mind, but there's also this idea that if just this, then we're th we'll get right, there. Right, you know, right. it's it's the the other thing too. I think is it 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 doesn't take into consideration human depravity. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, um, right. you know, the only people who are really depraved are the oppressors. Yeah, uh, in, in some of this model, the victims are not. Yeah, you know, they're never the problem. The problem is always the oppressor. Yeah. holding it up. Whether it's the bourgeois or yeah, the bourgeois or the, the capitalist interests or, mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, or the church, the old monarchists, yeah, you know, the monarchist, right? And and so all of this is 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 creating this, and I think it's important too to realize this is all happening in a political social mm -hmm. milieu where you do have uprisings happening in in Europe in mm -hmm. the 1830s, 1840s, right. so. There's a zeitgeist, if I can use that. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a spirit of the age that wants to change the way things are right. were, right. And, and some of that was anti uh, anti aristocracy. Yeah, anti There was also nationalism tied into there because yeah. we get the German state, right. uh, the Italian state, uh, and so all of this is sort of swirling together, and you, you really can't understand it until you understand it in those contexts yeah. right when you talk about Herder right. and this romantic nationalism right. well that helps explain the german nation right. and the italian garibaldi and the german nation and these types i of think things. that's true and i think what you've got in that phrase the way you're the way you're talking about it there is another important piece of this is that the dialectic only happens when the old passes right yes there's this, so we say critical later one of the ways to think about criticality because hegel is very much very much interested in being critical of those things which are holdovers from previous eras yeah. rather than allowing the dialectic to move forward. Yeah. So you want to keep going back to Catholicism. You need to deconstruct that in a sense because you think it's always right. Yes. When really it was just a thing for the time. And yeah. so there's this constant effort to have to break your connection to things that don't belong in this day. Yes. And I think I think what you see in Marx, in Hegel, and also in the critical theorists later on is that this, and, and I think you see it in Darwin as well, that destruction is the only precursor for truth. Yeah. You only can allow the dialectic to move forward once the, once the thesis is broken. Yeah. Um, once the old construct is destroyed. And you say a lot of modern critical theory is focused at constantly pecking at any established tradition or norm. Yeah. Say, Why is it so negative? Well, you got to understand underlying this, the way it is with Hegel, you can't actually move up mm. the progressive line until the old things, the old apparatuses are broken. And so it's almost like a blind faith. You could say, well, why Napoleon? Because feudalism had to fall. But why Napoleon? Because feudalism had to fall. Yeah. And, and it's almost in a sense in which... It doesn't mean we're not going to punish Napoleon. Right. But yeah. he served the dialectic. He served well. the dialectic, right. Yeah. And, so, and so the negativity almost becomes constructive. And I think this is where the word deconstruction matters point. in the 20th century. The more you destroy things, the more you make possible the... Now, how do you know the dialectic will always move in the right direction? Because the, because the, the world spirit is always evolving. Yes. And I, Say the same thing from, it's interesting with Darwin. I often say to students, what's, what's the real catalyst for all change in Darwinism? Death. 
If you don't have death, you don't have evolution. You have to have death. Life is secondary to death. Mm -hmm. Once you get the death happening, then things start to move up the line mm -hmm. and better. So it's not it's improvement, not because you know it's improving, because you're killing off the old yep. apparatus. So the idea, and I think you're right, the idea of these some of these things will linger into the into critical theory. And this idea of criticality comes out of this moment where you have to deconstruct or break whatever is not willing to move forward and yes. change yes. to unleash the dialectic, right? Yeah. To start making and these I think changes. It creates change. a posture of um, you know, sort of epistemological squinting. Yeah, you, you know, okay, you're yeah. sort of in this sort of suspicion. Yeah, right, right. Uh, which right. is Nietzsche. But it also, I think, you're always evaluating all of the systems all yeah, the time right. because you're always looking for, well, is this the right way to that's do right. it? Uh, because you don't have sort of, well, I know this is right because this that's is right. always right, and it's always right that this is right. And, that's exactly right. You know, it's in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right. it's right. And, and so you're always in this posture of looking for some of these things. And, uh, it was interesting. Um, some of the Frankfurt School guys would say, you know, if you're not depressed and you're not and you are okay with how everything is, you're really been duped, right? Because you don't understand, right. you know, you don't. So it's almost like uh, one guy was saying that he, he was so upset when he lived in America because people would say, "Well, be happy, smile," and he's like, "No, sometimes I just want to be depressed. I just want to walk around depressed." And but there is that that sense. You're right. It, it, it's a critical nature. It's a suspicious nature yeah. uh, of always about and that's not Hegel that's really how people are going to latch on to pieces yeah. of Hegel and I think that's an important point that right. Hegel's ideas did not have longevity in the sense that people were died in the wool Hegelians for yeah. 200 yeah. years what you get is his ideas linger yeah. from people who I think cherry pick pieces of yeah. it but the ethos seems to stay. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's, and that, that's how I sort right. of get no, it. Right. No, and I think I think until you get to Hegel, I think he's such an essential piece because that that framework or that DNA now gets scribed pretty well. Now we've got a playground in my mind. We've got a playground where we can achieve right or wrong without reference to the noumenal at all. Yeah. Without a reference to an absolute, we don't have to. We don't have to know any of that. Phenomenologically, inside our experience, we can actually arrive at a good, a beautiful, a true, simply by obeying the dialectic of the history and being part of it as it grows. Yes. And being part of the state. Because, of course, for him, this is still the march of God through time and history. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, you're right. And I don't think until we get that. So, you know, you say, boy, critical theory just seems to make mo so much sense. That's because we're all pretty much converted into a Galilean way. That's of a great point. We've, we've sort of been catechized already. Right. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. 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 You say, oh, boy, everything's moving towards equality. So, and even you see Christian students going, but why... Why, if we've moved towards well, that's because you've been you've been trained to see history as this constantly improving dialectic. Um, Peter Kreeft out at, at Boston um, University makes this really great observation that a Christian view of history is actually far more wave-like, sine curve-like. Yeah, yep. some things We're get better, some things get worse. Yeah, right. Yeah. It goes up and down. And you look back at the Greeks and say, oh, well, they did some things better than we're doing some things worse. But but I would guarantee most of our students have been trained from growing up yeah. that if they look down the long corridor of history, they don't see a sine curve. They see maybe a halting, but a constant progress from no medicine and no computers to medicine and computers. Yes. From slavery to freedom, right? We're always trained to see. I, was, I put dots on a board usually with the students, and I'll say, let's, let's look at the dots of history and see all the things that happen in arbitrary standard. And I'll say, now, if you get way up here and you look down... You see a line forming. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're way up here. 
That's all, and this is what Marx is going to do, right? Economically, mm -hmm. he finds a way to track all the events of history from something basic and backwards to something forward and complex, right? Yes. This and same thing from Darwin, which is really odd that yeah. you start with a single cell creature, and somehow from that simplicity you get massive complexity, yeah. because that's the unfolding of history, and it is self-fulfilling because you obviously choose whatever you're doing now yeah. as the advanced, yeah. and then just look back in time and find out oh, who was heading in this direction? I doubt if you ask the Romans, right, whether they felt they were on track to becoming modern Europeans in the 21st century, they would have... They thought they were good. They, heck no. <laughs> we were at they the would, end of history. If they saw it, they'd be like, that's a declension. That's worse than we are. Mm. At least we have virtue. At least we have national loyalty. Yeah. We have all these things right. You're wrong. But we actually say, no, we're at the pinnacle now of history and the cutting yeah. edge, like you said, the, you know, history's on the right side. We are just on the fringe of now getting to the next upper stage, which you have to have a Hegelian view to see it that way. Yeah. I'll give you, I think there's an example I'm thinking about. As we're recording this, the war in Ukraine, between the Russia-Ukrainian war is taking place. Uh, and we've talked to a lot of people, students and stuff, who were just so really thrown off by this. Right. And, and a number of them said, you know, I just thought we were past this. Yeah, what? Well, right? <laughs> a neo-Hegelian view of the world. And these aren't, these aren't people who have even read Hegel. That's right. You know, as soon as we say Hegel, their eyes cross. Right. But they've absorbed exactly this right. zeitgeist of progress That's right. and, and moving in the right direction. And, and at one point, I actually said to some students, I said, so you think that type of invasion stopped right. when we had black and white footage with a strange guy from Germany with a mustache, right. a strange mustache. That, that was that. That was that time. And, and, and they're like, "Yeah, I, you know." And, and these were these were students who they just said, "Yeah, I really thought we were past that in the mm -hmm. West." And that that's Hegelian, that's right? Exactly. That's Hegelian yeah. to say that we're where you and I we're sort of more Augustinian, and we're like, that's right. I can't believe there's been this much peace." Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And, and so it's a very different piece, and I think too part of this Hegelian mindset even seeps into foreign policy. Oh, yeah, goodness because gracious. Because if you are Hegelian, you might be operating in a more idealistic frame sure. in your policy, where if you're more of a, a realist, Marian, Augustinian yeah, realist, realist yeah. you might kind of play sort of the, the Bismarck real politique. Right. Uh, and, and so you can see those tensions there, and it's it's rooted in philosophy. It's rooted That's in right. epistemology. Right. It's rooted in teleology. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can miss it. Yeah. You can um, that's miss right. It. Once you've gotten this view, I think you're exactly right. Once you've gotten this view in your mind, you will start forcibly organizing the facts around you yeah. into the pattern that makes sense to you. Yes. And quite frankly, not everyone is Hegelian, but but many people in the West have bought this progressive Hegelian view that the dialectic is, I mean, I think it's Steven Pinker from Harvard who's made this big argument that we have evolved past violence. You know, he does these, these studies where violence has gone down, murder has gone down. So how could you say murder's going down in the 20th century? Well, there's other, what, density of population. Like, there's some other argument. Like percentages. Prove. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's some other argument you can make to make sure the pattern does not change. Yeah. And that's what this new idea in this Russia-Ukrainian war to yeah. put Putin in the 19th century is to say, somehow we've allowed this conspirator, this yes. saboteur, yeah. to exist from a previous dialectical era. It's as if he got through a time machine and came through the time continuum. How, uh, how, un, how unreal yeah. that he's done this. Yeah. And it must be that there's another saboteur under here somewhere because history has already proven that we've moved beyond that. And so we've, we've heard about the term sort of existential angst. Right. I think maybe a lot of people in the West today are dealing with teleological angst. That's right. Yeah, historical angst. No, I know, think that's in, right. In the sense that I really thought we were in this direction right. and we'd gotten past this. Right. And it's not. Right. And I think 
but I, again, I didn't drop that on them. The students were yeah. already sort of traumatized by it. But I, I'm trying to process where did this come from, right? right? Where did these ideas come from? But again, I think what we're trying to point out is that some of these ideas are in the air. It's in the air. Yeah. It, it's like coronavirus, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it is. It's in the air. Yeah. It's, it's out there. Yeah, but look at and look, you inhale it. Look at Mark. I mean, you, you even made this comment earlier. Look at how that idea is woven into the very fabric of our culture. New is always better. Yes. Old is always worse. Unless it's retro, and that's the new hip thing. But then it's a new version of the retro thing. Exactly. Right? So it's a turntable with Bluetooth. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. No, yeah. that's right. And so, and so the commercial environment tends to reinforce this by saying the older one is always the worst one. My wife and I were, were just sort of joking tongue-in-cheek because we had to get a new washer-dryer set, and the new ones don't work quite as well. And we asked the tech wire, he goes, that's because they're better. <laughs> Got it. See, the old ones weren't driven by a computer that could make decisions about how to run the water. They just did the same thing for everything. Right. So, so it's interesting that better is now a higher tech when it actually doesn't function as well. Yes. But there's even, and that, like I said, there's no Hegelian thought there, but there's this framework that says that better, we've yeah. advanced this and therefore it's improved. Yeah. And, I, and I think the idea that we're always living in a culture where that's the constant framework of our inter- well, interactions. Let me, let me throw this out there is part of the way we've been catechized to think that way is often, I think, is Moore's Law from technology. Because Moore was a computer scientist in the 70s who had this idea that every 18 months you can buy a computer twice as fast or twice as much memory as you did 18 months earlier. Mm. It actually turns out it's about 13 months. Mm. And so, again, there's the, the technology has even catechized us to almost think Hegelian, right? right? Because yeah, yeah. the iPhone 13 has to be better than the yeah, iPhone 11. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to be advancing in this way. And obviously, technology does move in that direction. Yeah. That, that's fair. We learn. But... But yeah, that morals do. And see, that's the thing. I mean, does the does the Hegelian sort of moral thing get sort of reinforced yeah. subconsciously? Yes, I think it does. Through this, the, well, the way we operate. Because everything has been married to technology now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, you, you can fix a car. You could probably fix a car much easier from the 1970s <laughs> than, than, no. than the 2010s. Because for 2010s, it has computers. Right, right. Um, and, and, and they're, and they're going to break. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, a car without a computer, Could you get the parts. You, exactly. And so y- you can see that we've even been sort of conditioned yeah. in our consumerism right. in the same way. It is. And, and, and where this becomes a real issue, I think, is in the moral side, where you start to say, well, you, you're, you're, you guys are very concerned about marriage inside, of, sex inside of marriage. And you're very narrow-minded. Now you're old fuddy-duddies and you don't get the cool hip thing. And then we realize sex is okay. Now we're realizing, you know, so, so what time is the idea of realizing we're growing up? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, st- we're starting to say that morals follows the pattern of yeah. evolution and progress. And that if you thought that way back in the 20s, that's because you were narrow-minded. That, not that they were right or wrong. They were narrow-minded or backwards. And this has replaced morality. Morality isn't what's right or wrong. It's now whether you're up to the times or behind the times. Yeah. Or whether, you're in the, whether you're in the stream of change or in the newest thing. And I... Our culture is obsessed with with youth, right? I mean, our, yeah. It's the new people that always know better because they are the ones willing to break from old traditions into the new one. And yeah. somehow that carries moral weight. But somehow a young person willing to have multiple genders is so much wiser and in tune with himself than someone in their 70s now says, born a man, I'll die a man. Ah, you're just an old fuddy-duddy, right? These, these And other cultures, by the way, that are backwards-looking cultures would not say that. It's probably why people don't want to take our classes. Yeah, well, like, no, why so do I need to learn about the old, right. the old synthesis? Exactly. You know that that was the past. But let's and... but let's go to Afghani culture. Let's go to a culture that actually thinks that the traditions established years ago, ancestors, 
is the gold standard in all things, yeah. then everything they see now is a declension away from that. And we say, oh, those are recidivist, re- re- you know, regressive yeah. cultures that just want to go back. They don't want to catch up with the times. They're, they're not good for, more, for human rights. Yeah. But then we can force children into sex changes because that's more forward advancing than asking them to oh, remain or voice or policy where we think we can just sort of plant our 21st century right. democracy in the middle of a culture that doesn't have any space no for that, such view right? as they kind of, see right. the world completely differently right. and expect them just to do it because that's yeah. that's the way history's going yeah exactly You're, yeah yeah, yeah. They, you know evolution needs it, a tip here they'll they'll just well and that, that actually does become some of the things that will be in the frankfurt school yeah. right that's that, right that sometimes these progressions that they actually kind of argue against marx and say you know marx really did have this hegelian yeah. autopilot Right. 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 And they said, well, no, that's not the case, because if that was the case, then post-war Germany should have had the yeah, socialist the revolution, right. not Russia. Right. So why did we get ours? What's going on? Right. And then it becomes, oh, you know what? This Hegelian move oftentimes needs to be goaded right. a bit. That's right. And, and move it. In the, and so then you sort of have sort of an activism. That's right. To move the move the dialectic down the path. Down that's the exactly road. right, and the activist becomes the moralist. And that's that's very Frankfurt. That's where you even see critical theory break away from Marx. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And and I think you have to get to that stage, that pacifist overall historical zeitgeist changing down to actually taking active change. And this is where we can go from dialectic to critical. Yeah. Right, because dialectic, and I think even in Marx, dialectic is an automatic evolutionary schema. Yep. Critical theory is an activist. Uh, you know, evolutionary scheme, it is. where you it have is. to actually get in and rework people's yep. expectations. You got to break those old ones down somehow through entertainment, culture, music, yep. Yep. language. Yeah. Well, that's that's critical. That's Frankfurt. That's Frankfurt. School. School. It's the arts. That's it's it. music. It. It's philosophy. Right. It's it's all those things right. are meant to be critical to move the dial. Right, and so they're ho- not there to entertain. You. That's right, and so that's exactly right. So hopefully, now that we've got this concept of dialectic, yep. authenticity, and alienation as these general concepts. We'll see these play as a DNA or framework yeah. up into the critical theory. And I think as we move into Marx in our next talk, you will really almost have to look at the two Marxes, sort of the yeah. young Marx and yeah. the older Marx, because the younger Marx sounds more like Hegel. Yeah. Uh, the older Marx hangs on to some Hegelian ideas, but is going to move in some different directions. Yeah, yeah. So. No, it's good. Thank Great. you, Dr. Thanks, Andrew. Mark.